Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. I hope that everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Those of you who are in the United States, at least all the rest of you, I just hope you had a good weekend. This week's podcast is again inspired by some newspaper articles that I read over the weekend. A lot of people hate the media these days, but I love reading newspapers. I've always loved reading print newspapers. So I get the Wall Street Journal uh, daily delivered to my house, and I also get the uh, Sunday New York Times print edition. And so I was reading the weekend edition of the journal and the Sunday New York Times, and a few articles about essentially personal finance popped up and allowed me to think of some things I'd like to share with you today about it. The first of them was in the journal, was an article on why prices end in nine. We all know that businesses like to price things at levels like $3.99 or $4.99. So they talk a little bit about the theory behind it and a little bit uh, about some of the research and what the findings are. I will, and the, the history of it. Uh, I'll try to put links to all these articles in the show notes, by the way, so you can read them. The journal and the times are unfortunately paywalled, so if you don't subscribe, there's no guarantee that you'll actually be able to get them. The interesting thing I found in this one was that you often pay more if a price ends in a nine. And it wasn't totally clear exactly what they meant by that. But what I gather is if you take a product like a can of Campbell's chicken noodle soup and you survey the stores that price it in a price ending in nine, like say $3.99, and you average the prices ending in nine, and you look at everybody who prices it in a price ending in something other than a nine, like $3.82, and average those together, the average price of people charging something that ends in a nine is actually higher than people charging price that ends in something other than a nine, which I thought was very interesting. They actually have a chart of this by product category. Uh, but maybe a little interesting trick is just to say favor buying products that don't end in a nine. I'm not saying necessarily to do that, but I'm going to be looking out and just seeing what I notice in terms of pricing, both online and offline, if I can detect any sort of difference there. So that was a, a one I thought was interesting. Another article in the journal was about what they call drip pricing. And this was a term I actually hadn't heard before, but drip pricing is basically when you are quoted one fee up front to buy something and then at the checkout or through the process, they ladle on huge amounts of extra fees that dramatically raise the price. So the thing that prompted them to write this article was uh, Airbnb announcing that they're gonna try to have more transparent pricing and not have all these add-ons. Uh, I, I haven't booked a room through Airbnb ever. Uh, my wife usually does that if we, if we use Airbnb. We're not huge users of it, but uh, apparently now it's become quite common that you'll be charged, say, $150 a night, and then there might be a $150 a night cleaning fee, and a bunch of other fees, so that it more than doubles the price of the actual listing. And so when they when you see it, or you see something, you see the price they're charging, and then you have all the add-ons, you're like, whoa, what the heck is going on here? And they talked about this phenomenon and why it's become so prevalent. And basically, it's because it works. Uh, and they talked about StubHub uh, that tried doing something similar when they, they used to have, you know, you buy the ticket, and then at the end, they add on all these fees. People complain, so they're like, look, we're not going to do that. We're not going to have any of this surprise, undisclosed fees. We're just going to, uh, you know, tell you what it's going to be all in inclusive up, up front. 
And then what happened was that this group of researchers partnered with them to find out basically uh, what the results of that were. And they discovered that people actually made more purchases when you did drip pricing and they bought more expensive tickets <laughs> when they uh, did drip pricing. That basically it is better for business to actually do the drip pricing than it is to uh, show the whole thing up front. Uh, even though customers say they hate it, objectively, that's what they do. And so I don't know if you actually have to put something in your cart uh, for it to, to count as, as drip pricing. It made me wonder if part of this is a sense of psychological ownership. Once you put something in your cart and click checkout, you've psychologically taken ownership of the product and therefore you're more likely to keep it <laughs> even if the price is higher than if the prices have been disclosed before you hit the checkout button or before you hit the cart button. And this reminded me of a technique that was used in the car sales business. I knew somebody several years back uh, who briefly worked as a car salesman at a uh, brand and dealership that shall remain nameless. And one of the things that they used to do at the car dealership, uh, which sales in a car dealership is apparently a very heavily structured process. It's not just the sales guy doing their own wheeling and dealing. They've got all these scripts and things they're trained to follow. But one of the things that this particular dealer used to do was something called a recon. And a recon is short for recontracting. Basically how it works is this. A buyer comes in and they are quoted a rate on their loan and they sign all the paperwork and they drive off the lot. And the dealer knows that the rate that they've quoted is not a rate that that person will be approved for. And so what will happen is they will come back later and they'll say, oh, I'm very sorry. Our underwriters uh, said that you don't actually qualify for that rate. You have to pay a slightly higher rate. And so they come back and retroactively charge them a higher interest rate than the one that was quoted, which they signed when it went off the lot. And the idea here was once somebody drove that car off the lot, they had taken psychological ownership of that car and they could have just walked away from the deal. They did not have to agree to this higher rate, but almost nobody did it. So this was a way to gouge people for more than that. Now, I don't know if they still do this today. It sounds like the kind of practice that should have been illegal. This was many years. It may have even been 20 years ago. And today, I, you know, I think underwriting and all that's now just pretty much automatic and done on the spot. Uh, but if this sort of thing ever happens to you, where somebody comes back and says, oh, sorry, something like this happened, it's almost certainly an intentional sales process. They're trying to get you to pay more and leveraging this psychological ownership concept. I don't know if that's what's going on with the drip pricing, but it wouldn't surprise me if there was something uh, like that happening. And then there was uh, an article in the Times about this guy who's apparently the world's expert on shrinkflation. So shrinkflation is when uh, a company, rather than raising the prices on an object, reduces the quantity uh, in a way designed to be not that especially transparent to a user. So for example, this was one that happened during the pandemic. Uh, companies that were manufacturing toilet paper started putting fewer sheets in a roll. So you say, oh, you're grabbing the same old uh, package that you always thought you did, and all of a sudden, wait a minute, 
there's not as many Kleenexes in this box. There's not as much in this box. So that's a process called shrinkflation. And this is something that has really taken hold in the economy, uh, not just recently. This has been a trend for a while. Companies figured out what we'll do instead of raising prices is we'll, we know people are very price sensitive, so we'll just basically uh, make the quantity go down. So you see this with like bags of chips. Like famously, you open a bag of chips, it looks like a huge bag of chips, and there's hardly anything in there. The thing is two-thirds air, uh, for example. They're just shrinking the size of a candy bar, shrinking the size of different things. This is done all the time. And this guy, what he does is he tracks down examples of this. He's apparently the only person who's really tracking it. So people send him tips, and then he goes out and attempts to verify that shrinkflation has indeed taken place, and then document it. And I believe he's made some kind of a database of it. And so in the article they mentioned, I think it was a, a brand of cereal, one of the things that they did was they uh, did shrinkflation by renaming giant size to family size and putting less in it. But one of the things that they did is they actually made the box taller. So it looked uh, like it was actually a bigger box. Now, maybe the depth had, had you know been narrowed, so it wasn't quite as thick. Who knows what the actual volume of the box, the cereal came in, uh, whether it went up or down, but they increase the height of the box to actually make the box look bigger uh, to disguise the fact that they'd actually put less cereal in it. Another one was cough syrup, where basically cough syrup companies reformulated their cough syrup in order to be only half as strong so that you had to take half as much. So you buy the same box, same exact size, same exact ounces of cough syrup and yet the recommended dosage is twice as large. So you only have actually half as many doses in, in the bottle. And, and so this, you know, this was uh, a little interesting. And what, I, what I basically came away with, way with uh, is this thought, which is there's always been this sort of back and forth hustle between buyers of products and sellers of products. You know, the car dealer or... Anybody else is, is trying to sell you something, they're using all the sales pitches, they're using all the techniques, and the consumer is trying to get a better deal. They're shopping around, they're doing negotiating, etc. And so there's always been this back and forth, and it was never fully symmetric, but to some extent, it was always somewhat human versus human. You are attempting to convince someone and yes, maybe you know all these techniques that you're supposed to do, but you're still trying to make the pitch and do these things. And so if I'm studying the sales books and I'm trying to pitch you on why you should subscribe to my Substack, which you should, go to AaronRen.com, click subscribe to my Substack. Maybe I'm trying to drive more subscribers on my Substack. I can make these pitches. I can use all the techniques. There's a lot of different sales techniques. There's a lot of different marketing techniques. I read all about how to write a sales letter. I can do all that stuff, and maybe I get some people in, but fundamentally, it's still me having to master the technique. Uh, even if I get good at it, it's still just me. Now what we have today, in this drip pricing example, illustrates what's going on, is because of digitization, the process of sort of buyer versus seller has become much more asymmetric. That is to say, it's not a human being on the other side 
trying to sell you something using his best technique, maybe even his best scam technique, you are going up against artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms that are optimized to determine exactly how to manipulate you into buying this product at the maximum price. Because they can, because of digitization, we can now see how consumers interact with the sales process online at every single step of the way. They even know how much time you spent looking at this, how much time you know you spent clicking at that. They know everything about it. And as a result, there is now massive, massive amount of data and all the technology can be deployed to utilize that data to convince you to do things that you might not otherwise do. So you're not only going up against a, humor, a human, you're like, uh, what's that guy's name? Magnus Carlsen, the world chess champion who can be beaten by a chess app on a phone uh, today. It's no longer chess master versus chess master. It's chess master versus a computer that can win every single time. So the balance of power there has sort of shifted in the direction of some of these companies because of digitization. And that's something that we haven't necessarily seen in the past where there's been this massive asymmetry. Yes, corporations could also always do focus groups. They could always run market tests. They could always do A-B tests. Now, these a AIs can basically create A-B tests on the fly and just constantly do them, iterating over and over and over again. They can figure out bespoke to you. They're informed by the latest psychological research. Uh, it, it's really, uh, really kind of wild when you think about it. There was a Netflix documentary that got a lot of um, uh, press when it came out. It was called The Social Dilemma, I believe. It's good. You should actually watch it. The sort of contrived scenario with this family and this movement called the extreme centrism or something like that was a little hokey. But the way they talk about how these social media apps get you hooked, keep you hooked, etc., using cutting-edge psychological techniques and this digital technology that allows them to have incredible visibility into what you're doing and apply all of this thing. It's asymmetric warfare. That's why we're addicted. That's why the video games are so addicting. They've actually got an addiction algorithm essentially built into what you're doing. So you're not just sitting here, uh, you know, again, I'm getting tired. I'm playing too much Pac-Man. I got to put the Pac-Man down. Now Pac-Man, you know, you just see a show in my age where I talk about Pac-Man. Now the Pac-Man game is actually actively manipulating you to stay engaged with Pac-Man and spend more money on Pac-Man baubles in your game at, at real time. There, there's an intelligence behind it, a machine intelligence behind it that's getting you. And this is one of the ways that some of the balance of power has shifted away from kind of the man on the street, the average person towards these big corporations, major institutions in our side. There's been this sort of upward shift. And we see this in like income inequality, many things. This upward shift has sort of renegotiated the relationship between kind of the individual and the, and the, and the firm, the consumer and the seller. And these sorts of changes have happened in a lot of domains of our society. They haven't happened everywhere, uh, but you know we can see that this, this represents a shift. Uh, another one, uh, this was also in the Times, uh, I believe, was uh, about access to public lands. Now, that is a little bit of a different dimension of this, of this same phenomenon of, of asymmetries 
playing out in ways that kind of disadvantage the average person. Apparently, uh, there are a lot of public lands in the West that are basically landlocked. They're surrounded by all these different privately owned ranches and things. And these ranches used to be owned by locals, regular people. And if hunters wanted to hunt on the ranch, or maybe the uh, locals wanted to, you know, go through the ranch to get to the public lands and hunt, they, yeah, yeah, go ahead, no problem. Yeah, yeah, do it. Now rich people have bought up all these ranches, and they are turning them into essentially private game reserves where you can pay like $10,000 a day or something to hunt elk, um, you know, something like that. So it's become huge lucrative business. And they're basically like, no, nobody can set foot on our property. And they're super aggressive. And so this article was about this way that this new app, and this is you know, a way digital technology in one respect is leveling the playing field, has a super detailed map of parcels. And you can carry this with you and follow little paths uh, through uh, sections of federally owned land, through all this private land to get to the big federally owned land. And the, the whole, uh, the whole um, article was about corner, uh, I think it's called corner hopping, where uh, parcels abut a public land abut at a corner of two pieces of privately owned land. And so there's actually no land bridge, but if you just step directly over from one parcel to the next, they're actually a big, big dispute. But it shows again that what's happening is essentially regular people who used to own a lot of this land are now getting displaced by ultra wealthy people. You've certainly read a lot about how Bill Gates, Ted Turner and other people are buying up all this land. All these billionaires are buying up land in the West as fast as they can not just billionaires, lots of people with any kind of money are buying up land and they tend to be extremely militant about keeping people off their land. They have very little concern about local people, very little concern about local traditions. And essentially the influx of this outside money into states like Montana, Idaho, uh, is really changing the game there. And a lot of you know, local people, traditional local people, are really getting squeeze and this is a phenomenon that we're seeing in which wealth is crowding in and displacing ordinary people is another phenomenon of, of this asymmetry and it's showing up i think now in very visible ways where it wasn't clear before so it used to be we have income inequality and that's bad and that's unhealthy because you know unequal societies breed resentment or breed you know a, a class of people who are losing their middle class status and that's bad. Uh, and it's wrong that all these rich people should be able to, uh, you know, have so much more consumption than poor people. So people think of it that way. And now what we're seeing uh, is, in a sense, the fact that wealth is now impacting on people's ability to buy a house, for example. That, and we see this as a phenomenon that we've seen happening for a while. People have been talking about it, uh, but it hasn't really seemed real to the average person on the street until rather recently, which is this. All these guys like Bill Gates made their money in the intangible world. They made their money in the world of, you know, digits, bits. Peter Thiel likes to talk about bits versus atoms. These are people who made their money in bits or they made their money in trading. They made their money in intangibles and they own a lot of paper wealth, a lot of stock wealth. And what they have been doing is essentially converting that into hard assets. Buying up massive amounts of property is a way of converting 
essentially an intangible asset, a paper asset, into hard assets, hard property. And the flow of all this money in has fundamentally disrupted the property markets and the ways of life in a lot of these places. And it's not just out west where, you know, Californians are coming to states like Idaho that didn't have that much population, drying it up. There's, there's sort of a supply and demand problem at some level there in terms of housing. But this idea of money coming in and buying up all the land is also an, another phenomenon that's out there. We see it in the same sorts of uh, uh, articles that have been written about the way that investment funds are now buying up single-family homes, you know, kind of wholesale. Uh, companies like Blackstone, raised $5 billion for a fund, now $5 billion worth of single-family housing in the grand scheme of things isn't that big, but it shows that there's a lot of investor money flowing into the single-family real estate market. So investors are buying properties in order to rent them. And there's always been, again, people that invested in rental properties. There's always been houses for rent. Uh, but now somehow people figured out, hey, this is a great business to be in. Rates, rates have been low, so it hasn't been a lot of yield. We can get a lot of yield off of this thing. Uh, I, th I don't know exactly how this got started, but I, I think it's probably related to the Great Recession, where ma there were massive amounts of foreclosures in a lot of these cities, and investors, savvy investors, came in and bought up a lot of this foreclosed, distressed real estate and made a killing off of it. And now people realize, hey, investing in this sort of real estate you know, at scale with a fund can actually be very profitable. Like renting this stuff can be very profitable. So now uh, you go out into the suburbs of your average city and investors, often out-of-town investors, are just making cash offers on houses the minute they come on the market. So if you're like a family who wants to buy a house, you're competing against a major hedge fund or some other type of investor that's paying cash for that house offering cash for that house sight unseen. If you own a house, you've probably experienced the situation where every week people call you offering to buy your house from cash for cash. How realistic this is, I don't know, but I know it happens because I hear from a lot of people who get texts, get calls constantly, want to sell your house, want to sell your house, want to sell your house. And uh, again, it doesn't take a lot of this to fundamentally disrupt the market because Markets are about supply and demand. The supply of homes is relatively inelastic. It's not like you can just fire up the production line and immediately start creating new houses the minute there's new demand. So even a modest amount of incremental demand in a market can send prices soaring. And the fact that there are now so many people making a lot of money, uh, plus all these investors, has really changed the game for the person making, say, 50th percentile money that they're at a tremendous disadvantage in ever trying to buy a house. Uh, I saw this article, this is actually about Facebook layoffs, and they were talking about the median employee at Facebook. The average, of, the average wage at Facebook is essentially $300,000 a year. Think about this, the average employee at Facebook is making 300 grand. I believe the actual number was 292 grand, but think about that, 300 grand a year. There were not very many people making 300 grand a year not that long ago. Today, uh, there are average employees at average tech companies pulling in hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And when you start having that kind of money flowing in, 
the people who are not in those sorts of industries get put at a huge disadvantage, particularly, of course, out in the California, where it's very difficult to build homes. But even here in Indy, it's now kind of a feeding frenzy um, on a lot of things. You know, in terms of real estate, the market has not necessarily cooled off here. They're really, really kind of weird. But what you're, what I think is what you're seeing is now regular people are having to compete with not only uh, not only a lot of these people making way more money, just you know, upper middle class people making way more money than they used to and being able to you know, spend and do all these things, but also these funds and very wealthy people who are now competing not for Hermes bags or some kind of a luxury product for the private jet market. They're competing with families in your community in order to buy a house. That family wants to buy this house so they can have a place to live. The investor with deep pockets wants to buy it so uh, it can rent it. And this is a sort of a symmetry. It's very hard to go up against those guys and think you're going, you're going to win. And that doesn't mean nobody can buy a house. Obviously, plenty of people are buying houses. But it does show that there's now been a fundamental asymmetry. You're no longer bidding against other average people or maybe going up against somebody who's got more money than you and like, well, I need to look here, I look there. You're now going up against somebody who raised billions of dollars and is paying cash uh, in that market. Uh, and so that's happening. And this, and again, this, this flood of wealthy money into these things is really changing the whole, the whole dynamics of how things work. You know, I mentioned out, out in, in the West, they would have lots of land and the, some local kind of wealthy guy, probably local wealth, owned that property. And he's like, hey, sure, come on across my land, hunt my land. Then these kind of out-of-town billionaires take over, and they're opposing a very different view. And the influx of private equity money into all sorts of different industries has produced that same dy dynamic. It's no longer the regular entrepreneur person owning this. This is a massively sophisticated, massively tech-enabled, massively wealthy institution coming in and then putting the squeeze on everybody with the power of their assets. Uh, the New Yorker did an article on this. I don't know if I'll put this one in the in the, in the show notes because I don't remember where it is offhand. But uh, the New Yorker, I believe it was, did this article about how private equity funds are buying out trailer parks. And, you know, trailer parks were sort of a mom-and-pop industry. And, you know, the guy owns a trailer park and he rented it. And it was generally like, you know, he treated the people just decently. Well, now the trailer park, got, private equity guys are buying out the trailer park. They're like, well, they aren't building many trailer parks today. Nobody likes trailer parks. We got these guys... They don't want to have to move. It would be hard for them to move if they did. It would be costly for them to move. So we're just going to squeeze them. We're just going to start turning the screws on these guys, and we're going to raise the rents on their lots, and we're just going to yield, maximize the crap out of these people. Sort of with the drip pricing, we're going to algorithmically get them because they're just they're, they're vultures. That's just what they are. They're vultures uh, on our society, and this is what they're doing all over the place uh, and acquiring monopolies, et cetera. So, you know, you think that, like, you're just, uh, you know, you're like a lower middle class person in a trailer in a trailer park, but you've got that and you've been living there. And all of a sudden a private equity firm buys that trailer park and like triples your rent. Okay. So this is the thing, the influx, this massive wealth inequality, this acquisition of billions of dollars of wealth. And there's not just one billionaire. There's a lot of billionaires, right? Who could buy a huge amount of, of land. The amount of so many more upper middle class people going in, this huge money printing that we've had and cheap money that allowed these huge funds to raise all this money. Now they're buying up houses in the suburbs. 
Now they're buying up the trailer parks. Now they're buying up the land. And it's, again, created a much more asymmetric environment for the average person. And this is a sense in where I see that some of the trends that people used to talk about, uh, you know, is being bad. You know, oh, billionaires, bad. Wealth inequality, bad. Uh, You know, corporations screwing you over, bad. And it was really hard to point to tangible consequences in the real world. Yeah, maybe you got gouged here and there. Uh, But now we see, especially with the social media, people realizing, oh, these addictive algorithms, all of how they're doing it, it's starting to to come to light. And now we're seeing practical consequences in the real everyday world of this massive shift upward in power and money that has really rewritten the playbook and the relationships, not just under which sort of the rich people live, but under which everybody lives. And now if you're just like a regular Joe who wants to go hunting or uh, you know, you want to buy a house for your family, or you're a resident of a trailer park, or many, many other things, you are now going up against very rich, very sophisticated, extraordinarily ruthless, and not very kind people. Uh, and it's very, very, very difficult uh, to do that. I would say, you know, I'm, I'm someone who has the potential to be a sophisticated shopper, by doing all the research on 99 pricing and all this stuff, what do I need to do? But like this idea that I have the time or the ability to go up against the algorithm, it's like the chess grandmaster trying to take on, uh, you know, the IBM supercomputer. It's just not likely to work. They're going to get me in the end. So this is just some things that I saw. And as you observe what's going on in the world and you read stories about, for example, housing market shortages or people buying up properties in the West, or you notice all these weird things happening with pricing just keep in mind, this is part of a general, what I would think of as a general pattern. And again, can I prove this scientifically? No, this is a cultural observation. I've always said I'm a cultural critic and commentator. I'm sort of making cultural observations. And certainly I would love to see some more hard quantitative research on this. I'm sure there is some. Uh, but I think we've seen this growing asymmetry uh, resulting from some of this two-tier economy, and it's really starting to spill over and have practical consequences in the real world. So thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it, and I will talk to you next week.